Today on The Balanced Word. You have to remember, God had one agenda from Genesis 3, and that is, how do I save these people? Which means everything that God did was for the greater good of how can I preserve the line of Messiah so that the one would come that had been prophesied about that he could bear the sins of everyone when he would die. Now, God had to do severe things at different times in history to rescue the line of the Messiah. And this was certainly a time when it looks like that happened. Wake up my soul, wake up early in the day, wake up my hand, and the instrument I play, wake up my voice, let the world hear me say, you are worshipped and exalted here today. Discovering Balanced Living Through the Word of God, this is The Balanced Word. We have an intriguing study from 2 Samuel 21 lined up for you. Rules and laws to govern our lives are important, but are there times when God may call us to go against a certain rule for a greater good? Let's say you're in Nazi Germany and have some Jews hiding in your home. Would it be wrong to lie in that instance to protect them from certain danger? We'll thoughtfully consider this together as Pastor Dave Rolf presents part one of Tying Up Loose Ends. Let's just dive right in. The first part of the chapter, the first 14 verses, is a story about uh, ultimately um, God condoning human sacrifice in order to stop bad weather. So you ready for that one? (laughs) Verse 1, there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord. Why did he wait three years before he ever prayed about this? I don't know, but I've certainly done the same. Um, And the Lord answered, It's because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the Gibeonites were people who were there in the land of Israel up in the north. They were a Canaanite culture that were there before the Jews came in under Joshua. And so you're talking about, you know, 1400 or so that... As they came into the land, the Gibeonites, rather than fight the Jews, as so many other people were doing, they heard how what had happened at Jericho and also. So the Gibeonites put some guys together and dressed them up like, like uh, they were all worn out and, and wearing dirty old clothes. And they claimed to be from, oh, Gibeon, it's a long ways away from here, but we traveled all this way because we're excited about you guys having your new land and we want to make a peace treaty with you. So Joshua signed a peace treaty with the Gibeonites, not knowing that they were plopped in the middle of the land that had been promised to them. But a deal is a deal, and so they kept that rule. And all through the life of Joshua and all through the time of the judges, they were at peace with the Gibeonites because the Gibeonites were, we have a deal. Well, apparently sometime while Saul was king, again, it's you know a few hundred years after the deal, he turned against the Gibeonites and slaughtered some of them. Now, this isn't recorded in 1 Samuel. We don't know what exactly when it was, exactly how it happened, how he justified it. But apparently, Saul just got, you know what? These people are in our way, and we're just going to wipe them out. But he, he killed a bunch of them, at least. But we don't know how many. All we know about it is what's in this chapter. So now here, God is saying, here's the problem. It won't rain because... 40 years ago, Saul killed Gibeonites 
violating a treaty that was 400 years old. That's why it's not going to rain. And David's like, okay. So he figures, I better go talk to, Gi- to the Gibeonites. And so the king called the Gibeonites. I don't know how he got their number, but, and spoke to them. Now, the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them under Joshua, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. So David said to the Gibeonites, look, that was wrong. Happened a long time ago. What can I do to make it right? I want to have peace with you people. And so what shall I do? And with what shall I make, you know, um, with what shall I make atonement, payment, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? He goes, how can we be good? How can we resolve what had happened in the past? And the Gibeonites said to him, we don't want money from Saul or from his house. Like, we don't want you to give us a bunch of Saul's stuff. We can't be bought in that way nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. We don't want you to hunt down whoever was involved in that. I mean, most of them are dead already anyhow. So we're not asking for that. And so then David says in verse 4, well, okay, whatever you say, I'll do it for you. He's like, just name it. I want to, be, I want to make right this wrong that happened for a 400-year-old treaty. And so they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel. So as far as this evil Saul and what he did to try to remove us as a people, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us. And we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. (laughs) They're like, We will go to his territory, we'll take seven of his descendants, and we will offer them as a sacrifice to Yahweh. When Lord is in all caps, it's the Hebrew personal name for God, Yahweh. So they're like, we're going to offer these guys to your God as a sacrifice, and we'll do it right there in an area where Saul's family comes from. And the king said, okay, I'll give you, I'll get you seven. Now, it wasn't easy to find descendants of Saul. A lot of them had been killed already, but he managed to find them. And you're starting to go, wait a minute. You're going to sacrifice humans to God so that you can get better weather because of something that happened 40, 50 years ago. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, because, like, I already have a deal with this guy. And so he, he's like, whew, thank God for my wheelchair. And, and the son of Saul because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan. So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, this is a different Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Allah, whom she bore to Saul. She was one of Saul's concubines, and so she had a couple kids. They were now grown, obviously. And the five sons of Michelle, the daughter of Saul, also the wife, two-time wife of David, whom she brought up for Adriel, um, the son of the Basili. So probably what, what it is is Michelle never had kids because uh, as far as we know, and certainly David wasn't, he was still mad at her because she was making fun of the way he danced, if you remember that story. But she was raising these boys who were probably her sister's kids. And so it's like, we'll offer them up. Now, if, if David wasn't at odds with his wife Michelle before, 
This probably put an end to most of their loving communication. He delivered them into the hand of the Gibeonites, verse 9, and they hang them on the hill before Yahweh. <laughs> so they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days in the beginning of barley harvest. Wow. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Allah, who two of these boys were hers, she was a concubine of Saul's, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she didn't allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day nor the beasts of the field by night. Seems kind of weird, but, you know, she was protecting the bodies of her kids after they had been sacrificed. So this is kind of gruesome. And uh, David heard about it. And so David went and got the bodies, the bones of Saul and Jonathan, who, as it says here, they, were, uh, they had been rescued by the guys from Jabesh Gilead, who, after Saul and Jonathan had been killed, they were hung on the walls of the city of Bet-Shean, and then finally the, um, the people from Jabesh Gilead came and rescued their bones, but they hadn't buried them yet. So David went and got Saul and Jonathan's bones and the bones of these guys that were killed in this bizarre sacrifice, and he gave them a decent burial. He brought all their bones down and buried their bones in the country of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, Saul's father. So they performed all that the king commanded, and after that, God heeded the prayer for the land. So is this a weird story or what? There's a drought, there's a famine. David waits a few years before he prays about it, and then God goes, this is really because of something that happened decades ago where Saul broke a treaty and so that's something that you need to make right with the Gibeonites because they got, you know, ripped off. And so then he goes to them and goes, okay, what do you want me to do? Sacrifice seven of the descendants of Saul. And he's like, done. They sacrifice them and then they're given a burial and then it ends up raining and the drought's over and everything's fine. Now, does this seem strange to you that Yahweh would actually condone human sacrifice? It's so easy for us, to, and it's why it's easy to just skip this chapter, because it's a strange thing that it seems like God's behind this, and here David is doing this, and it just seems so wrong to us. So, I mean, I wrestle with, why did it take so long before this happened, and how could, and there are commentators who say that, well, these seven uh, descendants of Saul were probably involved in attacking the Gibeonites, violating that treaty. But their ages wouldn't have been right. They couldn't have been. They would have been too young unless, unless they came on there on their big wheels and they're attacking Gibeonites. So how do you make sense of this? Now, there are a lot of things in the Bible that people don't teach on. And often, especially in the Old Testament, there are some people who just completely remove themselves from the Old Testament because there's stuff like this in it. But let's assume that God is good. Let's assume that everything that he tells people to do is right. Not just because he said it, but because he actually is loving and fair and reasonable. If you take that as a presupposition, now you can look at this and go, what might he have been thinking and why might this have been the case? You know, in philosophy, they talk about ethics. Ethics is the way in which you decide what's right and what's wrong. And there are often debates in ethics because there are some people who think that right and wrong is absolute. Either it's right or it's wrong, and it's very simple. 
There are other people who say, no, it's not always that simple. Sometimes doing the right thing means doing something that would ordinarily be wrong, and yet in this circumstance, it actually is the best thing to do. And so ethicists go back and forth on this. There's Joseph Fletcher, who is really known for situational ethics. He was, a, he was an Episcopalian um, priest, and he was also a professor at Harvard. And he wrote a book talking about this, how, come on, sometimes the, the right thing to do is something that you would think would be the wrong thing to do. But he took it to its logical conclusion, and he ended up, like a lot of people, he ended up being an atheist and deciding that all ethics are situational, that there's no such thing as an absolute right and wrong. Therefore, if there's no right and wrong, there's no God. That's where he took it. Now, there are other people. The Pharisees are an example of people who just think what's right is right. The rules are the rules, and you have to follow the rules. When Jesus came along, he's like, they're criticizing him for his disciples violating the Sabbath. He's like, wait a minute, guys. I mean, this isn't, the Sabbath was made to help people. It wasn't made for people to serve the Sabbath. And besides that, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. So can't you figure this out that this wasn't the intention of the law and therefore its obedience might be at a higher level of ethical standards than you really understand when you try to explain it simply? Now, we go, I mean, there are people who debate, for instance, Rahab in the Old Testament. She was a, um, you know, a prostitute in Jericho and she hid the two Jewish spies and saved the nation as a result. And when the armies came around from Jericho, she lied. So what was it, right or wrong, for her to tell a lie? And there are some people who are so stuck in their, in their narrow-minded ethics that they say it was wrong, but God used it, and she probably repented later and said she was sorry. You don't see that in Scripture. She gets put into the, into the line of Christ. So at the same time, people have that same debate about people who hid Jews you know, during the time of Hitler. They'd come to your door. Do you have any Jews in your house? What do you say? Is, is truth always right? So should you go, yep, they're behind the cabinet in there. Sorry, I cannot tell a lie. Or do we go intuitively, don't we know that protecting people's lives is more important than telling something to somebody in a particular situation? Ethics is never that cut and dried and simple because they're... Sometimes a war is necessary. There are, we have a country because, and there are people who, John MacArthur says that the American Revolution was a sin because of Romans 13, that you have to submit to the government. But he's in, under questioning, he goes, but I mean, we're really blessed because it happened, but those guys were sinning. Because you can't believe that at some point, in some way, resisting the government might be which is ironic given his fights with the government over COVID and everything, but that's a whole different thing, different government, you know. But so when we're dealing with right and wrong, we have to understand it's kind of, there might be times when something is necessary that in another circumstance would really be wrong. So, I mean, for instance, if someone asks you, do these yoga pants make me look fat? (laughs) Okay. You know, what do you say? You know, go ahead and answer that honestly and spend a lot of time alone. But what makes the difference? See, they're still right and wrong, but the Holy Spirit has an advantage in knowing exactly when the situation 
overrules the law, the rules. Now, if, if you don't understand that, you will never understand Jesus. You'll never understand most of what he said. And also, life will be a problem for you. Really, part of why this is, remember this, God sees the future. Now, if I, you know, talking about the Jews, how about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor in, in Germany who plotted to kill Hitler? Now, Dietrich Bonhoeffer ended up being hung for that. But if he had accomplished it and saved millions of lives, would you criticize him for violating Romans 13? Now, what if you could travel through time? And you may think that traveling through time is impossible, but you know, Jesus, for instance, says things like, before Abraham was, I am. Wow, it sounds like he has a different understanding of time than we might, you know, except for a few wackos on Joe Rogan. We're like, no, no, it doesn't happen that way. But God can see outside of time, in and out of time at the same time. He sees every consequence of every possibility that might happen. Now, would it make a difference? Like, if I could get in a, in a DeLorean and go back to the 1930s and kill Adolf Hitler and save 8 million Jewish lives, would that be wrong <laughs> or would that be right? But the catch is we don't know. I can't look around today and decide who's the next Hitler. But God can see the future. So when God does something often, it's because he knows what would happen if he doesn't. And that's why I need to listen to the Holy Spirit instead of just following rules. Some of the most important things that you do in life are things that violate some rule because God was leading you to. Now, that could be an excuse always, but I remember one time years ago, and I'm sorry I get old, I repeat stories. I don't know if I've told you this story, but um, I was at Calvary, and I got one of the kids, a couple of the kids at school said, our mom's back in her apartment, and she says she's going to kill herself today. I'm like, oh, and I head over to her apartment, and she was in really bad shape. I sat there, I sang to her, I prayed, read the scriptures to her. I spent like half the day with her. And then she seemed like she was doing better. She finally turned up some of the lights. And, and um, so I go, okay. So I come back. Well, like two weeks later, Pastor Romain came to me and he pulls me aside and he goes, did you go spend half a day in a dark apartment with a single woman with nobody even knowing who, where you were? And I'm like, Yeah. And he goes, don't you ever lose the ability to do something like that again. You saved that woman's life. I'm like, whoo. <laughs> there are plenty of rules I broke that didn't get that response from Romaine. But it registered that in that case, you know, rules are rules, but rules don't supersede when the Holy Spirit's leading you as to what to do. And so now you look at this circumstance. Just, I'm just hypothesizing here, but... Suppose, like what would have happened if they hadn't made peace with the Gibeonites? David's about to die. His son Solomon's going to take over. They've just been through two revolutions. They're, they're weak. The northern tribes are still not crazy about being ruled by somebody from Judah. The Gibeonites are living up there in the middle of where the northern tribes are. Now, what would have happened? And also, a lot of this you have to understand in light of these were collectivist cultures. We're individualistic culture. Like, if I didn't know one of my ancestors, I don't care about them. I'm like not, no offense to you Mormons, but 
I, I really don't care who my great-great-great-grandfather was, really, unless he left an inheritance. But <laughs> in, in most collectivist cultures, which is most of the world, and which was certainly all of history, a generation would find out about something that, was, that wronged their ancestors, and it was like, you did it to me. And they would take it upon themselves. Wars were fought because of things that had happened 200 years before to their, to their ancestors. And so the Gibeonites could have been in a position moving forward where they could have done great damage to Israel. As it was, Solomon ended up getting along great with most of with the northern tribes. It was only after Solomon died that the north split off from the south. Part of that was because people like the Gibeonites were up there going, look, we're not even Jews, but these guys are good guys. They're honest. They screwed up and they made it right. And, you know, we're good with them. So did God know this needs to be fixed now because Solomon won't be able to fix it. He won't have the clout. And this is going to backfire on us unless right now we make peace with the Gibeonites. But the only way to make peace with the Gibeonites is for seven people to die. Now you go, but seven innocent people died. I don't know if they were innocent or not. They probably were, more or less. But, I mean, what's seven people compared to a war? How many people did they lose in these last two rebellions that they had, these last two civil wars? We, we lost more than seven people just running away from Afghanistan. So why are we acting? If, if, there, if you could avoid a war by seven innocent people dying, that's, it actually makes sense from an ethical standpoint. But there's another side to the coin that, I, that you should consider. Who's going to be a threat to the kingdom of David? Who's going to be a threat to Solomon as soon as David dies? Number one, would probably be descendants of Saul. Because again, collectivist culture. They're like, our family should be king, and here's our opportunity. He's got this spoiled little guy who's a total womanizer and everything, and yeah, he's really smart, but he can't fight. And, and so this would have been a great opportunity for the descendants of Saul to bind together. Now suppose God looked at it and he knew that those seven descendants of Saul were going to destroy the nation, ultimately, the kingdom, well, would sacrificing seven of them to not only secure this issue with the family of Saul, but at the same time secure the problem from the family of Gibeon, and only seven people die. It seems like a pretty good decision. Now, if you're saying, you're just making this up, yeah, I'm hypothesizing, but I'm suggesting at least one way that this might have been a brilliant thing to happen. And plus, when you look at any violence in the Old Testament, you have to, I mean, there are people who are just like, I don't want anything to do with the Old Testament. It's so violent. But you have to remember, God had one agenda from Genesis 3, and that is, how do I save these people? Which means everything that God did was for the greater good of how can I preserve the line of Messiah so that the one would come that had been prophesied about that he could bear the sins of everyone when he would die. Now, God had to do severe things at different times in history to rescue the line of the Messiah. And this was certainly a time when it looks like that happened. You're listening to The Balanced Word with our pastor and teacher, Dave Rolfe. Today's message is part of our study in First and Second Samuel called Kingdom Building. Stay with us for more teaching from Pastor Dave in just a moment. These programs are available by podcast at thebalancedword.com. 
You can also call and request a CD copy at 949-362-7475. You might also want to request the entire Kingdom Building series, again at 949-362-7475. We'd also like to offer you Pastor Dave's Through the Bible in a Year series on a USB thumb drive for a gift of $25 or more. Go through the Bible in a year with Pastor Dave by ordering this special series today. Again, call 949-362-7475 or order online at thebalancedword.com. Your gifts help to make these shows possible on stations like this one all across the nation. Thank you for standing with us with either a one-time gift or ongoing monthly support. Donations can be made at thebalancedword.com. Have you had a chance to listen to Pastor Dave's one-minute messages? You can listen to those at thebalancedword.com and even join our mailing list so you can have them delivered to you each day. You can watch them on Instagram or Facebook, too, by following CC Pacific Hills. Pastor Dave would love to have you join us at Pacific Hills Calvary Chapel. Our service times on Sunday morning are at 8, 9.45, and 11.30. Directions and more information about the church can be found online at ccpacifichills.org. You can watch our live stream there, too, ccpacifichills.org. Discovering Balanced Living Through the Word of God, you've been listening to The Balanced Word. Set aside another half hour next time to hear another study in our Kingdom Building series from Pastor Dave Rawl. This program is listener supported and brought to you by Pacific Hills Calvary Chapel. Wake up my soul, wake up early in the day, wake up my hands, and the instrument I play, wake up my